one of the core fundamental beliefs that organizations are going to right now is data is the new currency within the organizations and how do you maximize the value that you get out of data. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hello, we're back for another session here at Sunnyside Podcast, and I'm excited to announce our special guest today. We have Jeevan Dugampudi, who is going to speak to us and very passionate about applying data fabric, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to make a step change improvement in business operations. Jeevan has a deep fundamental belief that human-in-the-loop workflows built by cross-functional teams supported by hybrid cloud technology are critical to trust and adoption of AI within an enterprise. He is currently a partner at IBM Consulting, leading the AI and analytics practice for healthcare, life sciences, and state local government clients. Prior to IBM, Jeevan led AI, ML, market development, and Amazon Web Service, and before AWS, spent over a decade in the data science consulting practice at Deloitte Consulting. Jeevan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Kiran. Yes, absolutely. And excited to to dive into this this world of AI and machine learning with you today. Maybe maybe we'll just kick it off with uh, you know, what are some of the common challenges you're seeing with enterprises and in driving insights within their organizations? Absolutely. Um so there are there are uh, there are quite a number of challenges that we see typically enterprises face as they move away from these um small scale POCs or MVPs to scaling their enterprises scaling uh, their initiatives within within the organizations. But more broadly, I would categorize them into three distinct buckets. So the first bucket is around just data itself, the non-availability of quality data across the enterprise in a trusted unified format is is a very common challenge. Is a very common challenge that many of our clients are actually working on. This uh, this also depends on the underlying technology infrastructure or capabilities that go about managing managing these data sources that are prevalent across these enterprises. So this is where we can talk about some of the data mesh or data fabric concepts that are that are becoming extremely popular. The second bucket where I see some challenges are more around the, the AI side of the world. Similar to the data scalability or availability on the on the AI side, we see challenges around having a, a scalable platform to develop, build, monitor ML models across the enterprise in a in a trusted uh, manner. And uh, this is where we see a lot of human in the loop processes uh, that drive for the trusted adoption of AI within these enterprises. So the concepts around ML ops and responsible AI are increasingly becoming popular because of that. And I guess the third one, which is more, I would say, around the business side of the house a little bit, is is just talent. They're one of the core fundamental things about the driving adoption of insights within the organization is, is to have what I would call as bilingual talent within your teams. So as you're driving these insights, creating a mix of technical resources with the right functional resources and pairing them up to go work on a specific challenge or, or a use case or a problem. So just getting access to a combination of technical talent and functional talent and organizing them appropriately for, for uh, specific use cases. We, we see companies struggle in that area as well. So, so at, at a high level, I, I think those are the three broad categories that I'm seeing companies challenge themselves or face these challenges to drive scalable insights within these organizations. Do you also, Jiman, do you also see, especially in today's like recessionary environment, uh, where, where 
companies are hesitant to do anything new or expansive uh, in today's market. Do you, do you come across in your day-to-day challenges with getting executive buy-in for these initiatives? And, and what do you see there? Yeah, I think it's it's a contrary, Kiran, uh, because we are increasingly seeing companies make investments into their digital initiatives, state and AI initiatives, even during these uh, the recessionary times that, that we are in right now. This is um, this is uh, primarily because AI has uh, and data and AI more broadly has has gone from this back door where data scientists are working these problems and and then showing these insights to like the forefront where AI is now being used to drive competitive advantage to our clients, whether it is on pricing, uh, marketing, sales. There are a number of use cases where we see AI getting deployed and, and worked on every single day. So to that end, I, I think we will continue to see more investments going into data and AI space. And it has clearly become a competitive advantage for our clients. And we see investments not just from a platform perspective where companies are investing in data mesh, MLOps, uh, trusted AI principles. But we are also seeing companies invest in organizations and leadership roles to support these initiatives. So hiring their first chief data and analytics officer to spearhead a number of these initiatives across the organization. And uh, these organizations, the CDAO roles are quite high up in the organization these days to show the value that uh, that uh, that the leadership of these organizations are putting into the, the data and analytics roles. So overall, I, I do not see this slowing down. Um, I, I see this only going um, more rapid and the, the value that data and AI will, will serve these organizations will only become more competitive advantage for them. Great. That's, that's exciting. Um, and, and, and can you can you also just talk a little bit now about why you're seeing these enterprises move to a decentralized data lake through data mesh architecture these days? Like, what are some of the benefits of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you, if you take a step back, um, I, I joke uh, that I've been in this industry for, for so long, almost 21, 22 years now. But if you take a step back around this evolution of, of how this, this whole uh, centralized data lake concepts came about, there was historically this this two type of data planes within enterprises. The first side of the data plane was your operational data plane, which is where you have your transaction systems, you have your ERP systems, and the majority of like your transactional databases, finance, HR, work data. On the other side of the world are people like me and and the, the analytics folks, right? This is the analytical data plane. And most of when organizations started realizing the value of analytical data planes, they started creating what I would call these centralized uh, data organizations. And these centralized data organizations, after their initial few quick wins, um, they were really good. Um, they proved the value. But as the, the central organization started to scale across the various functions within the organization, they in a way started to become a bottleneck. And the bottleneck is not because of their ability to serve the various domains, but the bottleneck is primarily because they were so spending so much of their time in managing the, the differences between the operational data planes and the analytical data planes, right? So they were just consumed by just making sure that both of them are intact, right? And this left very less time for these analytical central data teams to dive deep into the data that they are housing, managing, 
to be able to serve up insights to the business stakeholders faster, right? So primarily, it, it is because of that fundamental challenge that people started to realize that we need to have a, a decentralized data structure where it's not just a central data team that is managing and responsible for the, for the data. It is a combination of function-specific data, data teams that, that know this data really well. One of the other trends that's also was going on more broadly in enterprises were domain ownership of the data, right? So I work, for example, in a, with a lot of pharmaceutical clients where they, they have data sources that are used within the commercial side of the organization, specific data sources that they're used within the supply chain side of the organization. So, and similarly on R&D, manufacturing, quality, regulatory, but the people that know these data sources will really well sit within their functions and having a central data team and expecting them to really know this data was, was not something that, uh, that is manageable in the long run. So organizations were moving more towards the, the domain-specific ownership and domain-specific stewardship of the data itself. And honestly, because of all these things and because of this trend around the buzz around that we are seeing lately around data fabric or data mesh, um, we started to see this uh, decentralization of, of data that we see within these enterprises. And right now, it is the buzzword. And it's not just a buzzword. There are a lot of enterprises now investing significant amount of money reshaping their, their data enterprise to be more uh, decentralized. And I'm happy to go into how some of them are doing, especially for some of the healthcare and uh, life sciences clients also. But the, the, those are the fundamental trends here and that, uh, that led to the cent- decentralization of uh, data within these enterprises. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I also have 20 plus years in the B2B data business, right? And I've seen so many of these changes evolve where we were sending things on when I first started mail cards, right? And the technology wasn't even adopted a CRM ERP wasn't really a business critical thing <laughs> at the time. And as technology was adopted and grown and so many different types of platforms over the years, I've seen siloed data purchases to decentralized, back to centralized, and now back to decentralized is the better way to kind of work these tech stacks for data-driven solutions. Um, what do you see today in regards to as the move back to decentralized, what is the benefit of the decentralized mesh architecture approach for really specifically for delivering data-driven solutions? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you've hit the nail in the head uh, there with, with your previous comment there. One of the core fundamental beliefs that organizations are going to right now is data is the new currency within the organizations and how do you maximize the value that you get out of data? So to that end, this data mesh architecture that we're talking about is really where where companies see value that can be and that can be derived at at scale within these enterprises. And there there are I think three or four core things about data mesh that I continue to see organizations place value. But but the first thing that uh, that you mentioned earlier is to make and consider data as a product. This is bringing in some of the product thinking philosophy into into analytical data sources. This means that honestly, there are there are a wide range of consumers within uh, within the enterprise that would like to use the data. But how do you make that data available to a wide range of users, but also make it very res- uh, responsible, very trusted, so that um, they do not have issues with how they utilize the data? So we see a number of uh, tools and technologies uh, where these data sources are made available to various parts of the organization as a public API, 
where if I am a data scientist sitting in a different domain, I can just call a public API and import it into my notebook that I'm working on and then do my analytics with it, knowing that whatever is published through that API is a trusted data and that data as a product is being served to me, right? So that is one of the core principles of the of the data mesh. The the other core principle of the data mesh in my mind is is going back to our previous conversation is around domain ownership. This is where we we basically may mandate that the domain teams in the enterprises take responsibility for their data. So in my previous example around life sciences companies, typically data meshes could be organized in in the in these domains, and the domains for life sciences could be clinical R and D manufacturing supply chain commercial regulatory and and you could you could basically organize your mesh such that um the the data sources that are specific to those domains reside within that mesh and within that node within that data mesh so all the commercial data whether it is internal or external sit within the commercial node of your data fabric and then the the stewardship of that data resides within the commercial side of the organization and they decide which of the data products to publish to the rest of the organization as a trusted data source through a public API. So this whole concept of domain ownership is, is actually a very powerful part of the data product itself. And one of the other principles um, also is about what I would call like self-service data infrastructure platforms. So uh, if I go back to that example that I just had, you have these individual domain nodes, right? But how do you make sure that there is enough in- interoperability across these nodes, right? Because every domain could do things differently, right? And this is where the central part or the data infrastructure part of, of the data mesh comes in. Maybe there is a, a, a data core mesh node kind of a thing that basically sets a domain agnostic functionality, tools, systems, processes, so that these interoperable data products across all data domains continue to evolve within the organization. And, and there is also a little bit of governance that is established through standardization of data products within the various modes of the, of the data mesh. So in my mind, I think those are at least like three or four principles that are core to it. One is that the domain-based uh, feature the serving data as a product and and having a self-service data infrastructure platform that is basically making this whole data mesh much more interoperable uh, across the various functional uh, uh, functional modes of the mesh. Almost like a internal Amazon shopping experience for your <laughs> customers yes. or users of the data, right? If they could use it the way they want it in a self-service request, but still under the guise and control of you know, what's compliant and regulated by the organization to bring in. So there's no data sources that, you know, put the organization at risk. Would you say that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is a a fantastic example to to visualize, Kevin, because I could, there are some organizations much uh, that are much further along in this maturity curve um, where it is just like what you said, which is an Amazon type shopping experience, but you're shopping for data sources. right? Right. Like and, because you're in the Amazon umbrella, you feel a little bit more comfortable about what you're purchasing as opposed to using data outside of your enterprise realm where you could be putting the business at risk. And and, and you have uh, you not just have the trusted data that you can basically get to explore, um, but you could also get some similar to Amazon experience where we look at user reviews. There is uh, there are tools now that will enable 
reviews by various people that are using that particular data source within the enterprise also to to continue to improve your shopping experience, <laughs> shopping yeah. quote-unquote experience, right, for, for the data. And uh, it's, it's amazing how fast this whole uh, data availability aspect and governed data availability is, is growing. But there are quite a number of tools now in the market that are available that are readily um, making these uh, shopping experience happen. Okay, great. And any, any specific tools that you would point out that you work with or recommend for this or? I mean, I, I, yeah, there are, there are just way too many in, in yeah. this space, but I do see enterprises, organizations that we work use, use tools like Colibra for data governance. Elation is another tool that, that they use for data governance, but, but there, there are so many cloud native tools out there that sit, that are native to any of the multi, any of our hyperscalers and that also have these availability, that have these capabilities. But in a way, this area is only growing so fast that we'll continue to see the maturity of, of the products that are available in this, in this space grow much faster. Got it. Great. And what would you say, what trends are you seeing in data science and AI as a result of this today that are coming out of this? Yeah, on, 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 the, on the data science and AI, so this is where we move away from, let's say, the, the data aspect of things to, to more of like the insight side of the, of the organizations. And as we move on the AI side of, uh, of, the, of the functions, we, we typically see um, a, a few areas. I, I think I mentioned early on around uh, this uh, democratization of AI as, as, as a core function, right? So what, what I mean by that is, there are only so many data scientists who can really go into and code in R, Python, uh, Jupyter Notebooks, do hardcore data programming or data science programming. Um, but what we are seeing, and uh, one of the uh, trends that are evolving uh, is how can we make that accessible to the citizen data scientist that is in the enterprise? And that is only possible through some of these, uh, what, what the market is calling as a low-code, no-code softwares that are out there. Uh, and this is an area where you can use graphical user interfaces to just drag and drop to, to basically go through your standardized ML pipeline as a data scientist to work. So there will be a drag and drop for EDA, like an exploratory data analysis. Then you'll be able to drag and drop into feature engineering. You can drag and drop into your model calib model building and hyperparameter optimization, model validation, model monitoring, model recalibration. You're basically doing the end-to-end -end machine learning cycle without having to ever open a Jupyter notebook, right? So this kind of low-code, no-code tools, honestly, is they are really powerful for, for some of the enterprises that we are working with because it, it in a way, helps democratization of, of the tools. And organizations are now setting up internal platforms to enable access to the citizen scientists within the organizations uh, through these low-code, no-code tools. So that's one area. The, the other area that I, yeah, we continue to see quite a bit is, and this is only accelerated because of because of COVID, is the the drive towards using virtual agents to drive your customer interactions. So we work a lot with the payers, providers, and they deal with uh, with a lot of contact center volume, right? And you see these virtual agents now becoming a lot more smarter where we are not just answering FAQ type of questions, but we are uh, 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 the, the virtual agents can become smarter where they can answer questions where they're going into 
deep into your transactional systems and trying to understand why certain thing happened for the customer. So why was there a late fee on my credit card statement, right? That that historically was taken by, by a call center agent, but now we were able to design systems that virtual agents can, can handle um, as well. And that is an area that we are continuing to see huge amounts of investments, huge amount of time and resources that are going into um, how it's not just improving the contact center operations, but also how it is helping drive digital transformation for, for the com- employees, for the customers, or the agents themselves, right? So that, that area is, is a second area. And the last area is, this is more for the data science community itself. There are a lot of things that we have heard in the last uh, year or two years around, um, around how AI can also be misused, Right. So if you do not do proper governance around your AI models, if you do not use the right training samples for your models, there, there may be some biases um, that, that will creep into your model that will ultimately affect your decisions that come out of these models. So there is, there is a lot of effort that is going into trustworthy and responsible AI practices around increasing bias or I guess improving bias, improving fairness, improving transparency of these uh, AI models that are getting published so that everybody has access to to the information that is going into these models and they can then then decipher the models and then go about um, making sure that it is acting responsibly to to begin with. So those are the three areas, uh, Kiran, that again, there are many more areas, but at least in my area of work, those those three seem to come up a lot. Great. And and within those areas of... You know, low code, no code, and, you know, the other topics for better uh, identification of your customers and developing delivery models. Where do you see most commonly those advances driving value within enterprises? Like where do they, where do they, where are you seeing today kind of a quick return on investment, a quick, a quick value being found uh, as a result of these advancements from an enterprise yeah. perspective? I mean, the, the second example that I mentioned around using virtual agents, I mean, that is honestly something that, that can be stood up fairly quickly. And organizations are seeing very, very quick operational improvements with that. So um, a, a good example could be during COVID, we, we saw a number of our healthcare clients, uh, suddenly their, their call center volume spiked up by 60, 70, 80%, mm. just, just week over week. Right? Yeah. Now, they were not able to scale their workforce to to basically uh, to handle that increased call volume. The the average call call time themselves went from a minute to 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, for, for the customers, right? So it, what we have been able to do was to take our set of what we have an offering called cognitive care, which is a, a series of assets and accelerators and, and cartridges that we built for the healthcare area that we were able to immediately take those cartridges and the base AI functionality and, and deploy them uh, to some of our healthcare clients where some of the low volume questions or low value questions were easily handled by the virtual agent. And we were able to contain about 40% of the calls that are going into the human agent, right? Purely without even ever getting transferred to the human agent. And majority of these calls were contained um, in less than five minutes or so. So in a way, this this whole deployment actually, uh, from a timeline perspective, to your point around how quick we were able to deploy, the the fastest that we were able to get this up and running was about three to four weeks, right? 
um, get a prototype within one week, run it uh, shadow, uh, shadow an agent the second week, continue to train that model, deploy it in week three and, and make it live in week four, right? So uh, by, by third and fourth week, we could start to see these decreased call volumes that are actually driving the operational savings and operational improvement. So that is a powerful story that we have been able to accomplish over the last two years or so with, with a number of enterprises. But, but that is a trend that I see. Uh, any, anyone that has a huge call center volume, we can, we can drive um, decrease in, uh, in not just a call center volume, but also drive uh, improved uh, customer experience because they don't have to hold, hold on the call for much longer. Yeah, it's a great example, especially with the shortage of work that you couldn't do for an unexpected spike. Uh, and being able to react to that and stand up something, you know, it, within weeks is pretty amazing. So that's a great example, the COVID uh, showing value for organization. So, Jivan, I really enjoyed having you on our show today. A um, couple questions that I asked to kind of finish up here is, is there, for our audience, is there any resource for anyone that wants to learn more about the impact of data mesh architecture and advanced in data science and AI that we discussed today? Any resources you suggest people can follow? I mean, there is there is so much material out there, Keenan, um, that, that if you type any of these topics, MLOps, data mesh, you'll be flooded with so much information. But I can tell you what, what works best for me. Um, for me, I, I try to follow, there, there is I, uh, quite a bit of IBM research in, in these two areas around uh, trustworthy AI, responsible AI, and also data fabric and data mesh. So I, uh, I, I follow those blogs quite, uh, quite well. So that is one area that I uh, lean on for, for uh, my knowledge. The, the other area is typically because we are part of a consulting organization. If I come across something interesting, for example, I tend to share it with my colleagues and, and, uh, and they reciprocate and, and they, they send me information about articles they, 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 um, they learn on, or they see for, for either of these two topics or beyond. So. That, that's a second area on how I continue to keep myself up to date in this space. And the last thing is, is LinkedIn, honestly. Uh, LinkedIn is where uh, I get a lot of information about what's happening in these areas. So continue to follow the right people, continue to follow uh, some, some AI research uh, or data, data mesh research uh, people. Then, then you'll see a number of uh, these blogs also come up. That, that you can continue to follow. So those are the three areas, Kiran, that works for me really well. Excellent. And and if our audience wants to reach you directly, if they have questions about this this podcast show, uh, would you say LinkedIn is also a good place to connect with you yeah, directly? Absolutely. I think LinkedIn is uh, is the best uh, way to reach me. Perfect. Well, Jivan, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today on the call. And thanks again for being on our show. Thank, thank you for having me, Kiran. Great day. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV.